countdown to the last comic shop in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. People often ask me how the world ended, whether it was with a bang or with a whimper. And all I can say is, first they came for the drive-ins, and nobody said anything. Next, they took the arcades, and still, folks stayed silent. Then it was the video rental establishments, the record shops, and the toy stores. And still, they said nothing. By the time they got to the local comic book shops, there were no nerds left to say anything. Except for us! We're the last comic shop, raging against the dying of the light, sending our broadcasts back into the days of futures past, in hopes that our comic book reviews might alter this cold, gray reality in which comic shops are nothing but a long-forgotten memory. So heed our words and go to your local comic shop. Pick up either of the book we'll be reviewing today or any number of countless comic book treasures before, before it's, it's too, too late. late. And I'm the host with the most, Andy Larson, and welcome back to another week of The Last Comic Shop. Thank you for tuning in to our broadcast. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Chad Smith. So, Chad, on today's program, we're going to be doing another X-Men book. Uh, it's actually our other co-host, J.A. Scott's pick. Uh, J.A. wanted to go back and revisit his youth by reading the X-Men comic books he grew up with. Uh, in particular, a collection of not only X-Men, but also Power Pack, and I think there's some X-Factor, and New Mutants, and Thor. It's all under the umbrella of the Mutant Massacre event. But uh, we wanted to start off this show by talking about another X-Men project by somebody that we all remember from the days of our youth, which is John Byrne. Uh, one of the definitive X-Men artists of all time, and recently has been making a splash online because of why, Chad? Elsewhen. Basically, what has been happening since about 2018 or so, John Byrne has been posting around a page a day of brand new X-Men content that he is penciling and lettering and writing and just putting it up online as sort of like a fan fiction-y thing. It's his alternate reality storyline where he's picking up as though he's taking the book after the original Dark Phoenix saga. Right, but it's, it, I think, issue 136. But instead of Dark Phoenix uh, dying and paying the ultimate price, instead, Jean has her mind wiped, as was the original plan, and Byrne is picking up what some of those plans were. And he's been doing this now for a couple of years. At one point, he got into the origin of Wolverine. Which was super interesting. For those fans that may not know, uh, in John Byrne's version of Wolverine, uh, he had a healing factor, but it really didn't allow his bones to heal very well. Instead of Weapon X, which is kind of like a horrific way of him getting the adamantium, I think he gets paralyzed at yeah. some point, and he's in traction, and they basically replace all of the bones in his body one at a time. Yeah, also horrific <laughs> yes but like it was actually i think wolverine's choice you know i i, I gotta do this or else I'm, I'm not gonna walk ever again i personally love that take on the character as the the healing factor has just gotten so out of line speaking of another uh, thing that i actually like a little bit more is when they were talking about wolverine's origin their original plan of making Sabretooth his dad like i don't know if yes. anybody remembers that but like Originally, Claremont and Byrne were going to make Victor Creed actually Wolverine's pappy. And, uh, you know, that's why they have such a, an interesting rivalry. Is actually their father and son. Like a Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Kind of thing. Right. That actually comes into play in the book we'll talk about later on. Yeah. But, but no, the stories we've read, I, as much as I love 80s John Byrne, there's a line in the sand for me where John Byrne quits being as awesome comic book-wise post 1992 93 like even his marvel stuff his x-men hidden years and spider-man year one and things like yeah. that yeah there's a there's a certain moment when he, he stops being john Byrne and starts being john Byrne out where it's oh. like his uh 
best ideas are kind of behind him. I honestly think it's probably somewhere around his Namor series and his uh, run on Avengers West Coast where he made uh, the Scarlet Bitch. Uh, I think those are his last of his kind of okay ideas. But with that said, I've read the first couple issues of this Elsewhere thing, and it's tons of fun. I feel like it's a return to form of those classic X-Men stories before the X-Men universe in general went off the rails. Yeah, it's great to see some of these classic costumes make a return, too. So, I mean, you get Kitty Pryde in her original Sprite outfit, and you get Colossus in his go-go boots and uh oh that's the best costume for colossus i love that one and you got the second best storm which is the uh the 70s 80s storm but obviously the that's best right. storm of all time is mohawk storm which we're going to cover uh, later in this book and i will that's a hill i will die on <laughs> <laughs> well i gotta agree mohawk storm is the best and this is kind of the second best but yeah. i will say that read a little bit into the you get not only his x-men but you get issues with his Fantastic Four. You get issues with his Avengers. Some of the best issues ever drawn. Counting a fairy gets the Superman powers pretty much, and the Avengers fight him. That's all John Byrne art. People think it's uh, George Perez because he was also drawing at that time, but it was John Byrne. And so, like, there's issues where there's Sentinels all over the place, and he gets to just draw everybody. Fighty pops in, yeah. Yeah. One thing is for certain, although this is a return to some classic John Byrne form with this, uh, it's interesting, though, the fact that, like, Marvel has actually come to John Byrne and actually said, hey, do you want to put this out? Like, we'll actually publish this if you want to. And he has, quote unquote, respectfully declined. Right. <laughs> so it's weird. And we used our post-apocalyptic opening today. I feel like this is a post-apocalyptic way that comic books are going to happen, where this is not an official thing. This is not something Marvel has endorsed or, you know, no, they tried it, to get on board. That really surprises me that the Mouse House hasn't come after him and sued it for this because it's copyright infringement. I'm sure he's selling these pages to fans and whatnot. That's Marvel's copyright. That's oh, not, yeah. you know, he's that's, making money off of Marvel. That's actually how I found out about this. I was listening to the Rob Liefeld podcast, and he's an original art collector, and these pages apparently go along with the other burn pages from the, the classic X-Men run, and they all fetch a pretty penny. But this is fan fiction. He's not charging anybody for it outright. Like, you don't have to pay to johnburn.com or whatever to read it. Yeah, it's very similar to me in terms of the making the art pages. It's no different than maybe going to a Comic-Con and asking for a commission from John Byrne, which kind of makes me now think like Warner Brothers and and Disney could go to Comic-Cons and just shut them all down because everybody is basically making money off of their characters drawing original artwork and things. And They absolutely could, but comic books, as we all know, is a carny business. That's why we talk about bringing people under the tent. They could shut everybody down like that, but would you want to do that to the industry? No, they would become hated. (laughs) And they're already disliked on certain levels. Right. But can you let these creators, like, John Byrne obviously has some juice left in the tank. I would sooner read John Byrne's Elswin than some of the post-Hickman books, because at least I know what the heck's going on. Yeah, that is true. And, And... I could also see like young upcoming artists, you know, like colorists, inkers and whatnot, taking these original pages and then throwing them into a program, inking them out, adding colors. And, and you know, you're going to have like sons and daughters of John Byrne, if you will, people who uh, are trying to make a name in the industry, taking these. Hey, well, here's this John Byrne original story, but I've I've done the inks on it. So now it's it's a bit more finished. Or, yeah, I took what you did with the inks and, uh, you know, I added color. Sort of like the uh, the modern version of TikTok, where everyone's yeah. copying everyone. They're yeah, going to the get this collaboration version. community. Or the modern version of the Marvel tryout book. <laughs> right. But it's already happening. All you have to do is basically Google search elsewhere. And you'll see not only the original pencils, like just in the images section, but you'll see people that have done the work. Not on all the pages, but you can definitely find pages that have been fully inked, fully colored, and they look absolutely gorgeous. To Chad's point, this is an X-Men book that I would read monthly easy. Like, I would pay to read this. And I I actually enjoyed 
John Byrne's uh, Hidden Years X-Men back in the 90s. I didn't think that was a bad idea. I, I kind of liked that team anyways with Havoc and Polaris and the original X-Men. That was a cool team. And so, like, it's the same thing here. It's like going home again. And plus, because John Byrne's doing it all himself, you don't have to worry that he'll get halfway through the whole storyline and then quit and turn it over to another writer because he's decided he doesn't want to do it anymore. That's a Hickman rip. (laughs) He's a little salty at Mr. Jonathan Hickman. But one thing that we hope that you're not salty for is our review of Mutant Massacre. Okay, It's an X-Men book that actually has been published by Marvel in multiple formats. And we're going to get to that review right after these messages. So stay tuned. Greetings, henchmen and loyal subjects. I am Evan the Great. And I'm JVD. We're your hosts of the Fictional Battle Podcast, Crossover Collision, brought to you by the Villains Demand. If you love hearing in-depth breakdowns of your favorite characters and what they are capable of doing while fighting in random battlegrounds against other fan favorites, then this is the podcast for you. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast or over on TheVillainsDemand.com. Hazel always knew there was something special about her cat, Mooney, but she's still shocked when Mooney opens his mouth to tell her he's just had a vision. An ancient evil has awoken after centuries of sleep, and only one man can stop it, the legendary warrior, Beowulf. Unfortunately, it's been over a thousand years since he slayed a dragon, and he's been reincarnated as this guy. His name is Victor, and he's more unemployed millennial slacker than mighty warrior. Go to monarchpublishing.net for a free sample comic. All right, we're back with more of The Last Comic Shop, and it is now time for our Read Pile Review. Yes, where some of us are major X-Men fans, some of us are minor X-Men fans. Which one are you? Which camp do you belong to? We're hoping after today's show you at least belong to something. In any case... As I mentioned previously, we're going to be reviewing one of the classic crossovers of X-Men. Like, there haven't been a bajillion of those. I think there were actually more crossovers in the X-Men books than there were mutants at one point. And and that's saying something, because there were a lot of mutants. But was this, like, the first big crossover, though? This was the first. This is what kicked it off. It actually led to a spike in sales of the X-Men book, and then Marvel never wanting to give up on a good thing, said, you know what, we should do this every summer. Let's do an X-Men crossover series and and boost sales on all our X-Books. You have to remember, when this kicked off, X-Factor, which was the original X-Men redone, and we'll get to the horrible reasoning behind what X-Factor was supposed to be, Uh, but it had just started. It was only like four or five issues in. Yeah, it was a turnover of creative teams, too, after uh, the book was started by Bob Layton and uh, Butch Geis. But uh, here you had uh, Wheezy Simonson starting to take over with her husband, eventually picking up the art duties. Right, yeah. I mean, again, and you're introducing one of the major baddies of all of X-Men with Apocalypse. So this is before Archangel and all that stuff. And I was going to ask real quickly, as you guys are more into the X-Men than I am, is is Fall of Mutants the next big event? Or was it Inferno? Fall of Mutants was around X-Men 225. Okay. Because that's, that's what I thought. Because like in this, you start getting the, the kind of inklings of uh, Warren Wordsworth third transformation from angel into archangel and that's one of my favorite comic book covers from x-factor is he's first got the wings and he's flying and they're all like hung up in the background and it's when he first becomes archangel the angel of death it's a pretty cool series so any case we're talking about mutant massacre not fall of mutants and we're going (laughs) to get the creators for this huge huge thing from our own jay scott so ja who worked on this project well It's really a who's who of writers and artists from the 80s. Obviously, Chris Claremont was major domo running pretty much the long-term plans on everything. Then you had Louis Simonson, Walter Simonson, and Anne Nascenti contributing writing duties. Pencilers, I'm just going to read them off. John Romita Jr., Terry Shoemaker, Brett Blevins, Walter Simonson, Jackson Geis, Sal Bashima. John Bogdanov, Rick Leonardi, Alan Davis, and my favorite, Barry Windsor Smith. I'm not going to run through the inkers and colorists. There were a lot of inkers and colorists. <laughs> That's okay. 
that's all right. I think you got the who's who of artists uh, there. And you're right. Absolutely. Some of the best to have like Sal Bushima and Walt Simonson. And of course, Barry Windsor Smith, just for an issue. Alan Davis, too, who was uh, killing it over at Excalibur at the time, which is kind of weird that that doesn't get a crossover with it. Maybe that's because they're in Great Britain. What happens in the 10 cent synopsis, Chad? Which mutants get massacred? And who does the massacring? Well, I was going to say, it, the story itself is pretty self-explanatory. You have the Marauders, and they are out to massacre mutants, hence the mutant massacre name. Uh, most of those mutants tend to be uh, the Morlocks that would live in the tunnels underneath New York. But uh, they also do some pretty severe damage to the X-Men as well, leaving folks like Kitty Pride and Colossus in some dire straits. But we also we didn't mention the, the story issues that this takes place in. It crosses over between Uncanny X-Men 210 to 213, X-Factor 9 through 11, the Mighty Thor 373, 374, the New Mutants issue 46, and Power Pack issue 27. You're forgetting one, your favorite. Oh, Who's and your... Daredevil, was it 238? 238. I was darn me for reading the Mutant Massacre map on the back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the Daredevil issue barely has anything to do with anything. Like, Sabretooth shows up for a little while. It's almost like, I don't know, a, a lemon sorbet among all the killings of the mutants. You're just like, eh, here's Daredevil fighting some people for a little while, right? Well, yeah, that one, it's weird because Anna Senti was the editor for most of these books, and she's writing Daredevil. I felt like her Sabretooth was the one that, like, was the most out there. Like, her Sabretooth was just this animalistic... Right, he, he needs to kill because he's got this animal urge to kill, and if he doesn't, he won't be satisfied. Because you also have to remember, until this point, Claremont created him for Iron Fist. This is the first time he's brought that character over into X-Men and dealing with the mutants, and then, you know, he never left. He didn't go back to Iron Fist. He didn't <laughs> go back. And you can see the roots of that story we were talking about earlier, where he was supposed to be Wolfie's daddy. And it, and, and it really did elevate him. You know, he was almost a forgettable side character in, in the Iron Fist book, almost like a D-lister. And this brings him up to like an A-list X-Men baddie uh, within just the course of like two fights with Wolverine. That's all it takes. You just have to pair him with the right guy and something happens because... Well, that and the fact that you got that Alan Davis art. Ooh, and I'm going to go into that. It's J.A.'s pick this week. And I want to know... Of all the X-Men books that we could have picked to read on The Last Comic Shop, why did you want to go back to The Mutant Massacre? Why this one, J.A.? Because it's it's the granddaddy of all crossover events. It's the one that started, as we said earlier. I remember Uncanny X-Men 213. That's one of the greatest covers of all time. Sabretooth and Wolverine fighting. For that alone, it's worth the price of admission. You had that moment where Thor has the Viking funeral for all the dead Morlocks, and, and this is where Angel gets his wings destroyed, and that sets up Apocalypse and Archangel and everything that comes forward. I've been reading so much modern X-Men and Hickman X-Men and all this stuff where it's it's like you can see where Hickman sort of gets his ideas. I just don't think he's as good as how Claremont was with placing these little notes that have nothing to do with the story but don't feel like they're forced in but you know they're going to pay off a year from now or two years from now and the other thing he does too similar to hickman claremont is juggling a thousand characters but claremont does those little things that make you care about each single one just a little bit just enough for the story purposes where I don't know if Hickman does that thing. Right. The whole run kicks off essentially with the Malice Dazzler story. You get like two pages of that, and then you don't revisit it until the end of the entire thing. 200 pages later. Yeah. And then it all comes full circle, and you're like, oh, that's why we saw all that stuff with Lila Cheney and, and Dazzler at the beginning and Malice. But that's the whole thing about this era of X-Men. This is soap opera X-Men. Well, it, it's interesting because there are tons of overlapping parts, and you'll see the same scene play out, you know, from two or three different perspectives throughout the course of the story if you read all the issues. And that part was neat, but like as a story, the Marauders kill a lot of people, and it's real sad. But while there's not necessarily something you could put your finger on and say, 
well, this was super great outside of that Sabretooth Wolverine battle. Like, it's just the stuff that keeps you coming back month after month after month after month. And I forgot how great some of that was, but also I forgot how cringe some of that was. Like, the whole Scott, Warren, Gene, love triangle thing. Oh, everything oh. with Scott. Everything yeah. is once Phoenix dies, Scott is just ruined. Right. There, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a review, you know, out on my blog about what a big dick, again, Cyclops is the moment Gene Grey comes back in the picture. Like, especially to Madeline Pryor. Like, he has a kid. He's married. But the moment Jean Grey comes back, he kicks her to the curb. And, like, basically drives her insane. No wonder she becomes the Goblin Queen eventually. Because, like, terrible what he does to Madeline Pryor just because Jean comes back. And, like, I, I don't know. I will say this. You guys are gushing on this. And I have gone on this show a lot of times saying I'm not the biggest X-Men nut. I didn't grow up really liking the X-Men very much. I like the Avengers. I like the Fantastic Four. Those are my teams. And and, and when it came to the X-Men, I actually had some problems with getting in to the Mutant Massacre. I had not read all of it previous to this week. I had read bits and pieces. Of course, J.A. brought up one of my favorite issues of X-Men of all time, 213. Because, again, it's got that beautiful Alan Davis art. It's got the original Psylocke costume. Uh, And I think you can read that issue without really having to know the rest of the Mutant Massacre to enjoy it. But honestly, other than that, and maybe the Walt Simonson Thor, just because that's Walt Simonson Thor and that's so good, I I had a hard time caring. (laughs) Even though tons and tons of mutants were dying. They were being killed by nameless jabronis. Like, did anybody other than Sabretooth come out of the Marauders being like, yeah, I remember Blockbuster. He was the best. Or Riptide. Or, like, the same problem I have with, like, any other Chris Claremont groups. Like, you ask me how many people I can name of the Star Jammers. Like, other than Corsair and maybe that Chode guy? Oh, Chode. (laughs) (laughs) Who names the guy Chode? Yeah. I can't, I can't name any of the other ones. And it's the same thing with the Marauders. They're all nameless. They dispatch the Morlocks, like, off-panel most of the time. So you never really get a sense of, like, the massacre other than, I guess, when Thor lights them up. And you're like, oh, my gosh, that was a lot of people. Oh, I disagree <laughs> on that one. Okay. There's that scene where, where Scalp Hunter, whose name has been changed recently, where he shoots Kitty Pride through the head... This is coming out, this is, you know, mid to later 80s, and comics are in that weird phase where they're still aimed at kids, but they're also trying to be more adult than that, and there are lots of really gruesome scenes. The Marauders go and they murder that family with Grandma, like, just has the children there. There was a lot of really sad, terrible stuff that happens in this book, but it's interspersed with, you know, Callisto giving Storm the jacket back, like, here, take the leather vest. You you can't walk away from leadership. That's I love that scene, by the way. That's a really great scene where I can see some of your criticism, though, Andrew. I think the Marauders, I don't know if this is good writing or bad writing, but they don't ever say why they're attacking and why they've just decided to go on this mutant massacre at all. They they don't really ever explain that. It, it gets oh, explained later. Oh yeah. It, this is Chris but, Claremont. That's going to take a hundred issues. Yes. Yeah. And and it turns out it was a plot with Mr. Sinister and blah, blah, blah. Right. And it right into Gambit. Inferno and Gambit. And then Gambit's got to leave. And, and, and I think that Gambit thing doesn't drop for like 10 more years, right? Uh, 350. Yeah. That was the big thing for 350. You're right. They don't mention it very much at all. I think there's like one passing comment where one of the Marauders says something like, yeah, Sinister wants to make us the only mutants around or some garbage like that. But even to me, like I I caught that moment and I'm like, I know who Mr. Sinister is eventually, but what does that have to do with that sweet summer's DNA? Because that's all he cared about. That was was like his crack. Like he needed that. He's like, I need it. I need my next fix. Where's that sweet summer's DNA? And it's just... You're right. Like, they don't really give these guys any motivation to be killing them. So, like, why should you care? I think you care because it's not so much what the Marauders are doing. It's how the X-Men react to it. Obviously, they get decimated as a team. And uh, everyone's injured. Kitty Pride may be dead. Uh, Colossus becomes paralyzed. 
because he's got so many internal injuries and Magneto very cool scene so colossus can't change back because if he changes back he'll die so he's in his metallic form so in order to do surgery on him magneto does it so he's doing magnetic surgery on on metallic colossus and it goes well except he paralyzes him (laughs) except for that (laughs) malpractice but before that you have the scene where where colossus kills riptide who's this character that spins super fast and Colossus kills him by grabbing him by the throat and essentially stopping his head from turning and the rest of his body just it's like a chicken (laughs) and so you know Colossus is supposed to be this shining beacon a good farm boy you know goes very dark and Kitty Pride uh, at this point you don't know if she's going to survive or not she ends up obviously surviving with a great storyline with uh, Doctor Doom and Fantastic Fantastic Four it leads right into Fantastic Four versus the X-Men, the original event, which is, in that storyline, it's actually more about, like, did Mr. Fantastic give the Fantastic Four their powers on purpose? Which is, again, an idea Chris Claremont could only come up with, because nobody had thought of that up until that point. But you're right, like, there's these touching scenes with Franklin and and Kitty, and, and she's turning into a ghost and, and all that. This was my recommendation. I have two questions. Where do we stand on the power pack issue? Uh, it's a thing. Like, I don't like the power pack to begin with. I'm sure there's fans out there. I never got them. Explain quickly what power pack is for those who don't know. Uh, they're, they're actually preteen superheroes. Yeah. Um, they were written, again, to, get, to, to kind of go to that audience of like 7 to 11, 12-year-olds. And, and, and the only thing I can say about them is Franklin Richards is a member yeah, and, and it ran for like 64 issues. Dealt with AIDS, dealt with suicide, dealt with a lot of these. It served an audience. I actually just picked up the other day the Spider-Man Power Pack crossover issues. They were released by the federal government to teach kids about sexual abuse. Yeah. And they get weird. It had it had pedigree behind it. It was Wheezy Simonson who wrote most of those issues. It's just that it was honestly, when I was growing up, it was because it was aimed at kids that I didn't want to read it. <laughs> just yeah. simply say, like I was just like, I don't want to read that. That's what the that's what the adults want me to read. I don't want to read that. <laughs> I want to read what the adults don't want me to read. Right. But in the interest of bringing everybody under the tent, and it should be known if it isn't already, Power Pack was one of the MCU's first ten properties, <laughs> along with Iron Man and Shang Chi. Power Pack is on that list. Well, why haven't they done a Power Pack cartoon? You think that would be like the perfect, you could do a cartoon, you put it on Disney Plus, it's aimed for younger kids. I don't know, just saying. Not to go down this rabbit hole too too far, but the only actual experience I actually have with the Power Pack is later on, Jonathan Hickman brought some of the members of the Power Pack back into the Future Foundation book that was what? running concurrently with Fantastic Four when basically Reed told... Franklin and Valeria set up your own group of kids to solve the world's problems with you. Know, and Artie and Leech from this story. Yeah. And, and Clone Bentley. Clone Kid Wizard, which is the, one of the best characters in any comic book if you haven't read Future Foundation. But anyways. And that my second thing, how is it that people can't tell that X-Factor and the Exterminators are one and the same? They have different outfits. Didn't you see the overalls? That was the worst constructed plot point. I and they kept beating it as a dead drum. I was like, Cyclops "Come on!" Changes his glasses. He has the other ones. Yeah, it's that, totally different. You can you can tell that once Wheezy Simonson gets on that book, he she's like, "Ah, that's an idea that's better left in the trash." And they're already moving away from it. How bad is the name Exterminators? Why would you call any team that? It had I an like X in it. It, it was yeah. gonna sell. You know what doesn't have an X in it are ratings. Because it's not going to be an X rating on this show. No way. This is, a, this is an all-ages program. But we got it coming up right after these commercial breaks. Being a PI, you learn fast what seems like a normal case never is. You never realize how much you're going to need your friends. You can never guess how near your enemies are. And you never know who to trust. Now I'm chasing down an ancient artifact. The only thing that can stop this newly unearthed terror. 
sounds crazy, but I'm not thinking how nuts it all is. All I can think about is the only man who's ever managed to grab my heart is right at the heart of this mystery. And why? Every time my heart gets involved in anything, there's always a monster waiting in the shadows to break it. Ripped from the pages of the self-titled comic book comes Dash, a new queer supernatural noir podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Podcast Dash, on Instagram at dash.noir, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back with more Last Comic Shop, and it's now time for our ratings, where... We might get into a uh, contest to see how many X-Men we can name. Storm. Uh, that might actually be our rating scale this week. I don't know. X, one out of four X-Mens that are not Wolverine or Cyclops. There's tons. There's Is so Callisto much. an X-Men in this? Uh, no. She yeah. never was. But this is the start of uh, Dazzler Dazzler. being an official member of the X-Men, which leads to some of my favorite issues where she has that nice relationship with Longshot. There you go. And Betsy Braddock makes her debut, basically, as a member of the team. They learn to trust her in this story. Yeah. But we're going to learn to trust J.A. Scott, as we often do, with our rating scale. So, J.A., what's our rating scale for this week? Well, I could go uh, really morbid and say it's like one out of four dead Morlocks. Oh, <laughs> we're wow. not we're not going to be that bad. So uh, the whole story surrounded the Marauders trying to kill anyone with a mutant X gene. So we're going to go with that. One out of four mutant X genes. Okay. X-Men. Well, that's close to naming X-Men, I guess, because they all have them. Anyways, uh, we'll start off with Chad. How many mutant X genes are you passing out to the audience this week? Okay, if you couldn't tell by my excitement, I love this. And it's funny because this is actually, it predates when I picked up the X-Men. My first issue of X-Men in my Uncanny X-Men run was issue 217. Like, I was dealing with the aftermath of this story as I got into my X-Men collection. And then from the dealing with the Marauders... Then you get uh, the Fall of the Mutants, you get the Reavers, uh, you get the Outback, you get all that stuff. Maybe not necessarily in that order. There's tons of fun stuff that spills out of this from that soap opera element. And then I think that Thor run is probably my, one of my favorite runs in all of comics. And, and you see hints of it. You see Frog Thor make an appearance, basically, or at least his pals. And then the x Factors good, New Mutants is good. This is all stuff i was into at the time and going back just for nostalgia's sake alone i love it with that said the thing about this story is it's not so much a complete story unto itself as much as it is a day in the life basically where you're seeing the same day play out in all these different scenarios and how it affects all these different teams and so if you're looking for like a satisfying story with the beginning middle and end that's not what you're going to get here. But if you want one of the most impactful events on mutant kind, uh, you've got that in spades. Uh, for that, I'm going to say three and a half mutant genes. X-Men. It's lots of fun, and there are lots of things that I, I remember fondly. But at the same time, any criticisms, I think, are, are, are fair. I think without all those other feelings that go with it, it doesn't have the resonance. All right. Well, I'm going to go next because I think something that you mentioned in your review is going to dovetail nicely with mine. And that is the fact that I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. And I I didn't like it because there were a lot of issues in this omnibus that I could give two shits about. I really didn't care at all about them. So for me, if there's one word that I can sum up this entire omnibus in or this entire Uh, crossover and it's inconsistent it's just inconsistent there are a couple really good issues in this i I think there's four i can sincerely say there are four issues i actually really liked there was the second thor issue you know not the one where he's just hanging out with a family although you didn't like the family 
That has nothing to do with this crossover. But I did like where he, you know, basically kills Blockbuster and he gives everybody the Viking funeral. That was a good issue. And then I like the final three issues of X-Men. Of course, the Wolverine Sabretooth fight. I mentioned 213 is one of my favorite issues of X-Men uh, just because of the cover, the fights and everything. But then you get 214, which is just awesome Barry Windsor Smith art. And, and even though it has to do with Dazzler and has, again, nothing to do with the mutant massacre whatsoever, and just basically has Wolverine walking around in a choker. Yeah! Ew! Take it that off! the 80s and... <laughs> yeah. It doesn't go with your flannel shirt. But it's not a good look for you. It thought it was on, uh, too much on the nose. Anyone who's wearing the choker has been taken over by Malice. I was like, well, that's just sort of a, a, a easy out. Right. And, and, and it did have something to do with the Mutant Massacre because Malice is a marauder. Come on, uh, now. And I, regardless, I, I just I just didn't dig it. It jumped off that train of, like, making me want to care. The, the, the marauders were just nameless folks. They were killing other nameless folks. The X-Factor issues were just awful. <laughs> I don't know else to say it. Like, I didn't... That's the original X-Men, but I didn't care that they were in this event at all. I'm going to say 1.75. You know, and the only thing that saves it is the couple issues of uh, X-Men, which are really good. Uh, this doesn't get you're just me in a mutant yeah. hater. Oh, I'm not an X-Men fan. And this doesn't make me an X-Men fan. So I'm just talking from those folks that aren't X-Men fans. There's like 2% of the population. We're the true mutants. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Jay, it was your pick. What's your rating? Yeah, I, I can't give it a four. There, there is some parts that I thought didn't work nearly as well. I thought the Daredevil one, as you pointed out, I mean, the, the only reason that it's it's part of the crossover is because Anna Senti was editing probably the entire story run, so she wanted to write a little bit about Sabretooth. But it, if you don't read that story, you don't lose any of the bigger plot. The Power Pack issue, I, I don't know, I just struggling for me to watch eight-year-olds power-punching people. <laughs> Juxtaposing that with, like, all this death and destruction, like, the Morlocks. Really hideous stuff, and then you got, like, eight-year-olds fighting. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just too old. I'm a dad. I don't know. And we didn't even talk about, is it called Freedom Force? Who is oh, essentially... I love the, Freedom Force! The original uh, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants with Spider-Woman. I think they're fighting the X Factor. And they yeah, are, and they're all throughout the X Factor book. I will agree with you, Andrew, that the X Factor bits were the the weakest, except for that panel, and you get it twice from two different angles. Sort of that Rashomon thing that you're talking about, Chad, of Angel crucified with his wings spiked to the wall, which leads to him almost dying, and then having to have the wings amputated, and then Apocalypse, and 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 you could just see the pawn pieces getting moved by Chris Claremont setting up the next 10 years of X-Men storylines. So I'm going to give it 3.75 Mutant X genes. X-Men. Wow. Nice. Can I, uh, can I just shout out another thing we didn't talk about? Yeah. We didn't talk about the cover. Ah, the the cover of the trade is also the cover of X-Men 210. And uh, this is famous because the original version has Wolverine smoking, but then <laughs> mid-90s, uh, early 2000s, Marvel, whatever Joe Q took over, decided that Marvel characters were not going to smoke anymore. So if you go to the cover of the trade that we read, Wolverine has been edited out, so he's no longer smoking. <laughs> One thing they didn't edit or change was Storm's cat eyes. Because at some point she had regular eyes, then she had cat eyes, and then she goes back to having regular eyes. Do they ever explain that? I don't know that they do. <laughs> some things are beyond explanation. and But one thing that's never beyond explanation is our recommendations. We're giving them to you because we think they're good books that you should pick up at your local comic shop if you're inclined, in addition to picking up the X-Men Mutant Massacre either trade paperback or giant omnibus or however you want to get it single issues. But um, any case, uh, we like to often do on our show something similar, something current and something a little bit out of left field. And we're going to go ahead and start off with our similar book. And that comes from Jay Scott. He's going to give us more X-Men, right? 
I am giving more X-Men. I thought we weren't doing that similar current yeah! and out of the I'm on the fence about it. This is a retro show. We have the retro open. We'll do the retro Rex. Okay. Well, in the spirit of being retro, I'm going even farther back in farther back, further back, (laughs) farther or further, further, father, father, further, (laughs) further, further, even going further back. Yeah, I think that's a Groucho Marx thing (laughs) further back in the X-Men continuity to recommend X-Men Dark Phoenix. I mean, this is the comics, kids, not the horrible movie that came out of talking about, of course. Either one. They're both horrible. But the saga that kicked off the uh, death of Jean Grey. But I'm not just recommending you do the Uncanny X-Men run, which was 129 to 138. I suggest you get the complete collection, which also includes material from classic X-Men 43, Bizarre Adventure 27, and uh, Phoenix, the untold story from What If. If you remember, and the classic X-Men stuff is the greatest bit. Because classic X-Men wasn't just reprints of old X-Men books that were out of print. They added elements. They added panels. They added bits to the story to make them, oh, you know, there's a plot hole we didn't think about. Or there's, there's something that we needed extra added on. So this is the tale of how the Hellfire Club and the Phoenix Force combined to turn Jean Grey into the Dark Phoenix, and she rises up and she kills a a bunch of planets and then dies herself. Except she didn't die, because she came back. But epic tale of triumph and tragedy. And Scott Summers, as we rightfully said, was never the same after this. Wolverine as well, but Wolverine got better. This is sort of like (laughs) the beginning of Wolverine really coming into his own, and, and the end of Scott Summers being anything worth reading about maybe i don't know maybe you like him as a dick i like the whole battle in prior gene gray love triangle it led to a lot of great things not for madeline prior <laughs> it's not like the madeline prior kicked off like it just continued like scott never got over being a dick after the gene gray originally died like he just was like that I'm just a douchebag from now on. And it, 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 it's hard to come back when you see your true love incinerate herself. You know? It's hard to come back from that. You know what? She deserved it. She did. She, I, she, I don't. She genocide. Galaxy. A global, a galaxy. Level. Listen, yes. Jim Shooters, you calm down. She was worse than Galactus. And no one talks about that. All right. So we've got our current pick coming up. To, I think Chad's going to talk more about revisionist history and what happened if Jean Grey hadn't died in Dark Phoenix, right, Chad, with your pick? Heck yeah. I was thinking about going back and uh, recommending X-Men Omnibuses with the great work by Claremont and Byrne and Dave Cockrum. But Jay's got that covered. So I just recommend you guys read more of the John Byrne fan fiction elsewhere. It's tons of fun. There's still pages updated on the daily. If you want to find them, you go to burnrobotics.com. And click under the fan fiction. We'll take you to an old school web forum style thing. And you just want to look for the various issues where you can see Burn will post the, the pencil pages. And if you're an aspiring inker, you can go through and ink over top of those. If you're somebody that loves the process of comic books, like I am a huge fan of all the art editions and artifact editions and things like that. This is what you're getting for free from one of the greats in the industry and say what you will about uh john byrne as a person i'm not going to deal with that kind of stuff as much as i'm just going to enjoy this work that he's continuing to put out that like i said is some of the top stuff when he goes back and he's redrawing the sentinels again uh, he's uh not just including his own style but there are shades of kirby in there he's exploring the entire marvel universe i am very shocked Disney hasn't sued the pants off of him, <laughs> but uh, I'm very happy that stuff like this is happening because I like now I feel cool. Like I've got street cred. I'm going underground to get my comic books because people like John Byrne are posting pages a day, you know, for whatever reason. But I think this is great. It's great stuff. Right. And, and, and it's kind of neat as even a, a, just a thought experiment to see where storyline shift because he's bringing in. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Hey, you remember this that actually happened in real continuity? Well, what if it happened this way instead? So, like, for those people that have been longtime comic book fans like us, we can kind of go like, oh, yeah, 
yeah, what if that had happened instead? Like, there's one panel where they put all the X-Men in these Sentinels, and when they first land from behind, it looks like they're Nimrods. And I'm like, oh, look at that. It's like John Byrne drawing Nimrods, and he never did that, right? That's awesome. And he's even, like, calling his shots. He'll put, like, a a note on the page, be like, generously swipe from Gil Kane. And, like, this is just a, a comic book legend having fun making comic books. It's so pure. Even if it isn't, I don't care. I love it. Yeah, I don't know how Marvel is suing him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope they don't, because I'm going to continue to enjoy Elspin myself until somebody eventually catches on that, like, they they could be making money off of this, and John Byrne is not letting them make money off of this. So eventually somebody will say, nope, nope, we got to nip this in the bud. Yeah, where's the line between art and commerce? Who knows anymore? The world is crazy. Right. But one thing that is also crazy is uh, how this particular week's uh, book made me start to want to go back and revisit my comic book roots. Like J.A., whose comic book roots is is in the X-Men, mine is in The Amazing Spider-Man. And as growing up in the 80s and 90s, what were we spoon-fed constantly when it came to Spider-Man? Symbiotes. We couldn't get enough of symbiotes back in the late 80s and early 90s, especially after Venom hit the scene and then you got Carnage and all that stuff. It was symbiotes 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So recently, I had an opportunity to go revisit a more recent comic book that deals with symbiotes. Finally got around to reading Absolute Carnage. And I'm not talking about all of the tie-in issues like Absolute Carnage, Deadpool, and all this stuff. I'm just talking about the actual storyline absolute carnage which really deals with the fact that carnage is now like a zombie or some sort of undead thing i don't know what it is he's he's like a living symbiote that wants to bring back null the symbiote god who's been like imprisoned underneath a symbiote planet in order to do this he has to take over all the symbiotes that are on the planet earth and so this puts him in direct conflict with our heroes spider-man and venom again this is the this isn't the mac gargan venom this isn't uh the flash thompson venom they're great but this is the original this is eddie brock venom uh and it actually is an eddie brock venom that has seen a lot of battles uh he's a real like almost ptsd shell-shocked kind of war vet in this and uh, not only that but he has a kid (laughs) and uh which he hasn't told the kid that he's his daddy So you've got that kind of storyline in the background, but basically it's like these two former enemies in Spider-Man and Venom teaming up once again, but this time for reals, like, you know, Venom doesn't have any machinations about killing Spider-Man afterwards. It's all really just about like, hey, how can they stop uh, Carnage before he takes over everybody, including people like uh, Norman Osborn that's locked away in Raven Raven, Raven, Ravenclaw, Ravenloft, the Arkham of Marvel, whatever. But yeah, it's written by Donny Cates, who we've talked about on many, many shows. As Chad has mentioned on previous ones, uh, he has that bombast of the 90s, right? He knows how to write stuff that's like, yeah, I remember when it was stupid, but it's also kind of cool. <laughs> He's got that soap opera stuff, just like Claremont. Yeah, it's engaging. It's got great art by Ryan Stegman for the most part. And, and, and I, I think you should read it, even if you haven't read Spider-Man in a while, even if you don't really care about the symbiotes, even if you don't care about Carnage. This is actually a fairly decent story, kind of leads into some other stuff, which eh, you don't really need to know about. Absolute Carnage. Go pick it up. It's not as bad as you might think. What a recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing that we always recommend that you do on every single show is rate, review, and subscribe to the Last Comic Shop podcast so you never miss another one of our weekly episodes. And you can do that by going out to our website, www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com. We've got all the links to all of those terrific places where you can find our podcast. In addition, We also have a link to our YouTube channel, which has not only our podcast episodes, but also uh, interviews with comic book creators that maybe have Kickstarter projects going on. Uh, It's also got some unboxings of comic books and other action figures that we really love to do in our spare time. So always some some bonus additional content if you like these fellas. www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com 
And that carries over too to the social medias like Twitter and Instagram, where you can vote on our Wednesday polls. You could find great classic golden age covers that uh, Andy's digging up everywhere. You can find our weekly picks, uh, you know, and see what we're reading. There's all sorts of things available at Last Comic Shop on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can head back to the website and find what else, J.A.? Well, we got links to our merch store. Uh, we've got shirts. We've got tote bags, hoodies, pullovers, long sleeve shirts, coffee mugs, any sort of last comic shop merch you might want to get for yourself or that comic book lover in your family. There you go. And while we might be the last comic shop podcast, uh, we don't actually want to be the last comic shop. So we encourage everybody to go out to those local shops near you. You can use the Comic Shop Locator at www.comicshoplocator.com to find things like the Dark Phoenix Saga Complete Collection, including all that cool stuff from X-Men Classic and everything else packed in those extras. Or you can find Absolute Carnage by Donny Cates and Ryan Stegman. Or- yes, and and make sure it's Absolute Carnage, not Maximum Carnage. <laughs> Very important. It's 14 issues of bad, kids. Anyway, and then the last thing you actually can't find at your comic shop because it's underground. It's it's on the down low. It's it's mysterious. It's X-Men Elsewhere, written and drawn by John Byrne because he wants to. You can find it online at burnrobotics.com. Click the fan fiction button, go through the old timey forums and find the issues or look for it in other places on the internets. It, it makes you want to charge up your printer and, and print out the pages so you have, like, a ash can version. Ash can! <laughs> All right. Well, don't put our show in the ash can just yet. Make sure that you come back next week for more great Last Comic Shop reviews. I, until then, I was the host with the most, Andy Larson. I was joined by J.A. Scott and Chad Smith. And again, next week we've got Batman! Yay! It's the Batman movie. It'll be coming out next week, so we've got a review of that movie, as well as a Batman book, Ten Nights of the Beast. Stay tuned for that. Until then, stay safe, stay sheltered, and if you want people to completely forget who you are from one day to the next... All you gotta do is put on a jumpsuit. That's what X Factor did. He just put on a jumpsuit and they were like, hold on, who are those people? They can't be that Cyclops guy, even though he's wearing the same red glasses. Is that the original X-Men? They're wearing different uniforms. <laughs> it's like, with a giant X. It is. He's got the giant X. He's got a giant X. He's got a giant X. He's obviously Iceman, you stupid ass. <laughs> The last comic shop was a 2022 Black Angus production.